0: Great. It's good to at least get you thinking, I think I heard a couple of people trying to be funny and just say no. Uh, I hope you did sort of say more than that. I wonder if you uh, ever managed to catch the film, or perhaps if you did, even you can remember the plot line of the film Yes Man with Jim Carrey. Uh, The film's premise is that he says no to too many things in life. Uh, And so actually he should start saying yes to everything. If he started saying yes to everything in life, you know what? He might have that much more joy, that much more excitement and fulfillment in life. And so he does that. And so the message is that you might actually stop yourself really living by not saying yes enough to life. And of course it leads to increasingly sort of bizarre and comical situations, isn't it? Where actually eventually he realizes he does need to say yes more but not to everything, and only really to the right things. And yet, I would say for us, or at least for many of us, I reckon that the truth is the opposite. That actually you might very well need to say no much more, and yet not to everything, and only to the right things. And so this story with Jesus shows even he had to deal with this very practical thing, and shows us the sort of freedom of being able to say no. And so the second part of our series on living well and what does it look like really to try to rebuild sort of life coming out of a sort of time period in which we've really not been living too much, we've just been sort of hunkering down and surviving, is just say no. And I wonder if I were to ask you, you know, how much of the sort of stress of your life, do you know, a bit like a sort of tangled bunch of headphones, if by the time you sort of sit there and have untangled all those knots upon knots and you got it back to the beginning, you could realize that the problem started with you didn't say no to something you should have just said no to. And I wonder why it is that we struggle to say no, because I, I have three kids. Uh, they don't struggle saying no. At some point, that kicks in. But as children, they don't have any problem saying no. In fact, it's very commonly one of the first words they say, isn't it? And the most repeated, no. Yet why do we? We see it in life. We see it in quite serious ways, don't we? You see it maybe in that hobby that you only really do to be around that friend. That career that you only really pursued because a parent wanted you to do it. That responsibility that you took on because you wanted to please that boss can have quite serious effects, can't it? Eugene Peterson talking about this. Why is it that we struggle to actually say no? Why is it we struggle to take control of our own schedule and time and lives? So he gives two potential reasons. He says, firstly, and he's saying it about himself, he's being quite honest here. He says, because I'm vain. Because I'm vain. I want to appear important, he says, significant. What better way than to be busy? Second reason he gives is because I'm lazy. He says, I indolently let others decide what I will do instead of resolutely deciding myself. And to it, I think we could add two more. Why do I struggle to say no? Why am I so busy? Because I want to be liked. I don't want to risk disappointing or upsetting people, so I feel I can't say no. Or maybe because I fear that I will miss out. I don't prioritise, and so I overcommit to things that I can't keep up with and I should never have taken on. I wonder whether you recognise even just in one of those, something of yourself. But Jesus gives us here a great example of the value of saying no. Turn with me there to that passage. Look at that first verse there, verse 38. And the thing we see here is the conflict that won't end. Um, sorry to sort of trigger you if you had started to get over it but the way I think of this this sort of conflict that Jesus has been in with the religious leaders here is this ongoing constantly low level and sometimes sort of flaring up conflict that just won't die is much like that fairly insufferable period we had between Brexit referendum and Brexit happening of just constant conflict constant protests on either side and it seemed that whatever it was that you felt about it you didn't feel happy. Well, this is what it's like. It's a conflict that just won't end, that just won't die. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees come up to him and answer him. They're jumping in now, uh, in this story here, to a conflict that's been ongoing. And if, you just, if you've got a, a Bible there with you that you can flick back to the sort of earlier parts of chapter 12, you'll see some of this conflict that has been ongoing throughout the story of the gospel, but especially in this chapter has been evident and it's flared up over a couple of two key incidents. One, Jesus uh, and his disciples eating a grain from a field on the Sabbath. Uh, the problem being that that's supposedly breaking the Sabbath to, to reach out and to grab that grain at that height. They're now technically breaking the Sabbath because their arms have reached a certain height. And that Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath. And they say, you're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response just flares it up even more to say, my father's always working. I'm doing my father's work. And now they're super angry because he's saying he's equal to the father. He's saying he's his son, he's his heir. He's the one who can come and behave and speak and work just like the father does. It's a conflict that's been ongoing, but it's really been peaking here. And we see here the scribes and the Pharisees banding together. The Pharisees have shown this sort of ability throughout the course of the gospel to team with anyone if it meant that they could damage Jesus. Or at least in their heads, they thought that it might give them a chance to do that. The Pharisees, who are these sort of religious zealots, have previously teamed up with the Herodians. You can hear of that in Mark chapter 3. These were sort of royal of officials and those, uh, you know, part of that royal family and all of that kind of inner circle. These were people who were privileged and elite, the kind of people that, you know, many people in our society today really have a dislike for, don't we? Because you feel as though they've been, you know, born with a silver spoon in their mouth they've had all the opportunities from their birth and the pharisees have been willing to team with them even in spite of that and now the pharisees go another way because now they're even willing to team with these scribes these sort of if, if you like sort of clergy the religious class that's their job that's their profession and here's the thing the pharisees hated them both for different reasons but they hated them both they hate the herodians because of that sense that you know for many of us we have in society of uh, why on earth would i want anything to do with this privileged elite aren't they they're part of the problem aren't they why on earth would i want to be with these people who in many ways actually economically speaking financially speaking are sort of amoral as long as they're doing okay then everything's okay we don't want to be partnering with these people except when it gives us a chance to get at Jesus. And yet, on the other hand, they equally hate the scribes because they look at the scribes and they and compare them to themselves and they think, well, you know, we are just like so much better. Here they are, they, this is just their job and their profession. Here's these stuffy sort of academic theologian types. And, you know, we're the people who are really doing the sort of everyday stuff. They hate them for their formalism and for their place of authority. And yet it shows that they hate Jesus that much more that they'd be willing to partner with anyone if it would mean they could get to him. And we see that in those couple of incidents in chapter 12 there. Eating in the field on the Sabbath and also healing on the Sabbath. Why? Why are they so angry about this? Well, Jesus, in their eyes, try to think of it in their shoes, is undermining the significance of religious law-keeping. In breaking their rules in those incidents, he's saying they're not worth anything. Because he tells them, I'm the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for me. The Sabbath was made for people to enjoy God. That was an end in and of itself. Not as if somehow God sees you keeping a Sabbath of one day of the week and is really just bowled over. Oh, snap, I didn't see that. You've had a rest on a day. Whew, wow, I am, I am now just going to have to. What other option have I got but to bless you for that? That is amazing. It's not, is it? The whole point was to enjoy God in it, and that's what Jesus says. He says, I can heal this man because I'm about doing my father's work. My father's never stopping work. He's he's still holding everything together. And by the way, if, if he weren't doing that, if he weren't holding the earth up, then everything would just sort of implode into gloop. He's undermining the significance of keeping these rules see the point always should have been that the law shows you your need for jesus because sooner or later you realize how you haven't measured up you know you realize at some point you might get further than me before you get to that point but at some point you realize "Hmm, i really haven't quite measured up to this I need somebody in fact actually who who has somebody who has done this for me in my place somebody who could step in and really has kept all of this so it could be my replacement that's what the Lord was always pointing us towards that it's not about my performance but it's about me being united to Jesus and why does that matter and why does this make the Pharisees so angry well this is what they think they have over other people they think They've kept the law where others haven't, and so they have this over others. Now Jesus is completely undermining that and saying, actually, no, you haven't got it at all. It was all always about trusting in your good heavenly Father to deliver you, to do what you can't do. Now they have nothing. They've given their whole lives to something that has meant nothing in the end. The thing that they thought distinguished them over others as being better Has got them nothing. Jesus, in making himself the focus and the end of the law, makes these religious legal experts, the Pharisees, obsolete. What need do you have of them anymore? What need do you have of the guy who can tell you precisely to what point it is you can go to before you break the Sabbath? To what point can your arm raise up to your shoulder or not before you're breaking the Sabbath or not? is isn't necessary anymore if the point of the Sabbath was to spend the day rejoicing and enjoying all that God has given. There's no need of them. They're VHS salesmen in a Netflix world. They're just simply obsolete. And yet, we see that these Pharisees have been following pretty closely, and you find that, right? Don't mistake a follower for a friend. We live in a social media world in which we have followers and everything else. Followers aren't the same as friends. Enemies love nothing better than to know intimate details of all you're doing, don't they? Don't mistake a follower for a friend they've been following him very closely here they've been trolling him they've been putting out this misinformation about him that oh yeah well jesus can only do these amazing things if he does do them because he's demon possessed that's how he does it spirit of satan is within him and they've been seeking to kill him you know, what, it's important in this moment, and this story here, I think, gives us a great insight. To, you know what? We can have some wrong pictures of Jesus sometimes, can't we? Because one of the things we see about Jesus here, he's very direct, he's very bold. You know, sometimes there are these misleading pictures of Jesus where, you know, Jesus is gracious and is merciful and is compassionate and is kind. But one of the wrong pictures of Jesus is a Jesus who is, he's so weak he's like wet toilet paper he just sort of like crumples in any moment he gets repictured in this way in which he never was don't mistake his graciousness and his compassion and his kindness for that sort of weakness because it's not true to who he is and that's not true to the Jesus we see in this story Jesus has not stood for their behavior and he's gone on a scathing attack you can you can read the rest of chapter 12 to see that attack that he's given to them He's not weak. And he's probably said what lots of people would have loved to have said if they could have. (laughs) You know, if only they could have put it in those kind of words. If only they could have had that kind of authority to have really been the right person to be saying it. But he's probably said what a lot of people have thought about him. They're complete hypocrites. So they answer him. And here's the thing. These religious rebels aren't backing down from Jesus' challenge that he's given them. They're still answering him back. They still won't let it go. They still won't let this conflict die. They still won't stop coming back at Jesus here. It's a conflict that won't end. But look with me now just to the next verse as well, because we see the question that they shouldn't have asked. Uh, My granddad had a couple of sort of great sort of sayings growing up and and one of them which has always stuck in my memory is don't ask questions you might not like the answer to they ask a question of jesus here they perhaps ought not have asked teacher we wish to see a sign from you give us a sign will you give us something to prove who you are and right off the bat, and it might not seem it, but they're being incredibly disrespectful and dismissive. It sounds so polite, doesn't it? Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. It sounds so nice. And yet, it's one of those instances of a sort of polite smackdown that they're giving him. Because they're only willing to concede that Jesus is a teacher when he's been very clear about saying he's the son of God. Even just in the last few verses just before this story. That was his whole point, wasn't it? I've come here doing my father's work. My father's always working, so I'm always working. He was making himself equal to God, his father. They're rejecting that. Teacher. Sounds ever so polite, but it's ever so disrespectful, isn't it? I found a list the other day of people's sort of favorite polite insults. Uh, I've got got just a few of them here that are comparable. Uh, Someone talking about when someone uh, compliments themselves, returning it by saying, Who told you that? Or giving some unsolicited uh, support. I don't care what they say about you, you're okay. Or your inferiority complex is fully justified. Or I like the way you try. Or it's impossible to underestimate you. Or polite, actually very mean (laughs) insults, but seemingly so polite, so well-worded, so well-put. And that's what they're doing here. And what they're seeking to do is to sort of change the dynamics. Do you see that? They're seeking to pull him down. By now reducing him to just teacher, they're pulling him down. and, and, And by extension, when you do that, you sort of raise yourself up. Or at least that's the perception, isn't it? That if I drag that person down, if I knock them, somehow I'm raised up. Or at least they're knocked down beneath me anyway. They're trying to change the dynamics, aren't they? We wish to see a sign from you, they say. And this is a sort of really weak attempt at an alpha move, isn't it? To try and pocket Jesus, do you know what I mean? To put him in the back pocket that they're in charge, they're in control, they're the ones who call in the shots, and he's just the one sort of meekly, pathetically sort of answering them and doing whatever they want, as if they have some sort of authority over him. See, these religious rebels want to assert themselves over Jesus. They're wanting to get him to be doing whatever they tell him to do. They don't need a sign, they've had plenty of them already. They've had plenty of signs already. They don't need another sign. There's no lack of signs that has been given. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, we get this little summary as well as just all the narrative stories of things that Jesus does that only God could possibly have done. Matthew gives us this summary here, uh, chapter 4, verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. They don't need a sign. There's no lack of information on Jesus' part. They don't need a sign at all. What they're doing is rejecting the signs that they've already been given because they've already written them off. And so Jesus says no. And you know, sometimes there's times in life for you yourself when people are trying to put you in their pocket too in which you need to just say no. Times in which when nothing that you could do will be enough but you should just say no an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign Jesus tells us verse 39 here and Jesus has none of their false politeness do you see that they've given it this little polite sort of uh smack down here oh teacher give us a sign Jesus has nothing of it an evil and adulterous generation would ask me for a sign they figured we'll ask for a sign Jesus won't be able to deliver. That will expose his inability and it will totally discredit him and his claims. That's what they hope for, I think, isn't it? And now this is a stinging critique that Jesus fires back. You're evil and adulterous. You're morally corrupt and unfaithful. Directed to a people who are incredibly ultra-religious. You're actually morally corrupt, and you're unfaithful. How did they do this? Because they wouldn't have seen it that way at all, would they? They worked very hard to see themselves as morally pure and more faithful than everybody else. So much so that they've produced and keep volumes and and volumes of additional rules, like the Talmud is one example, to make sure that they would keep the rules that are there, but they just feel there's not enough detail in the Old Testament. Uh, These include even things as crazy as not eating from a pot that's been touched by a Gentile, lest you might make yourself ceremonially unclean. And that if ever even the shadow of someone with leprosy should come over you, that you would be impure. It's these rules that they accuse Jesus of breaking, by the way. For example, the man who picks up the bed after Jesus has healed him. They believe he's breaking the Sabbath because he's lifting something. He's using not only his arm, but the power of his shoulder. Now you're working. And yet, at the same time, whilst having all that sort of pedantic sort of detail there, they're happy to sort of find rules that will circumvent inheritance rights in order to get money siphoned off. the temple that's okay you can leave your family go without if you siphon the money off to us that's all right they're happy to allow divorce for any reason so long as you purchase their certificate they're happy to persist in a view that is fundamentally and, and foundationally racist that salvation isn't for gentiles isn't for anyone other than us And that sanctification basically is about me keeping myself clean from everybody else, ethnically. There's no other way to see that than being a fundamentally and foundationally racist view of the world. And having basically no interest in restoring people. It it just has a rule upon rule of telling people how you're broken, how you're unclean, how you don't measure up, how you can't be part of things, but just leaves you on the margins. And has no offer of anything to restore you. And really just doesn't care. Because so long as you're not that, just don't be broken. And overall, just a view of God that he's indebted to them somehow because of their performance. There's something grossly immoral in their legalistic morality. So that Jesus will call them whitewashed tombs. So Jesus gives them quite a scathing rebuke here. And here's the thing about Jesus, that if you're humble, he lifts you up. If you're proud, he'll punch you on the nose. And there's a graciousness, because the hope is that actually you might turn away from your folly. You might realize your stupidity. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. the question they shouldn't have asked but thirdly now this is the answer they didn't want to hear isn't it and look with me there to verse 40 as well um there's a a podcast i listen to peter crouch uh, famous ex-professional footballer uh some fascinating sort of insights into sort of realities of professional sort of sports and uh you know at one moment he discusses the sort of little rivalries that happen within professional sports teams uh, and so he says uh, I was flying at Liverpool and enjoying myself and then this younger Spanish model appears on the scene he was quicker stronger better looking uh, and then him and Stevie hit it off great as well he says it wasn't even a rivalry it was like he just came in and was brilliant and then reflecting back on it and reflecting back on most of everyday people's sort of lives they're saying you know what everybody sort of has a Fernando Torres It's not so different really for us. Everybody has someone who comes along in life and you just think, oh my goodness, they're just better. (laughs) They can do all the things that I can do, but better, (laughs) slicker, or funny. I wonder who your Fernando Torres is you might be thinking of. But here this is what the Pharisees find and this is what this chapter reveals. This story shows Jesus being everything that all these different patterns in scripture point to and yet better we've seen it earlier in the chapter that he's just like david and yet better he's better than the temple here he'll tell us how he's better than jonah and how he's better even than solomon in all his wisdom you know although jesus refuses to give a particular sign he does give them this learning opportunity, doesn't he? He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Whilst he's not giving in to them, he's not giving up on them, is he? Jesus, even in his no, is still giving these rebels a chance to understand him and to follow him. And that's something of the grace and the mercy that comes with Jesus, even in the moments where yeah, he is actually quite direct and quite strong. And it's a simple argument. The argument is lesser to greater, that he matches and surpasses all of these things. That he's like Jonah, but better. So Jesus doesn't offer a sign, but he gives the interpretation for what his sacrificial death will mean. For Jesus, the thing we see here is that you know the central focus of his life and his ministry is his death and his resurrection. You'll understand him by understanding that. And you see that there's some similarities between Jonah and Jesus. You know, they're both called by God to leave where they are and to go to a people on God's mission. They're both going to very different people. Jonah is going out to Nineveh a completely different people to him. Not religious people, don't know God, don't follow him, don't live like that. Jesus, too, coming to very different people, a very different place. They're both going to people who are far from God, who have made a mess of things. They're both called away from a place of comfort, from home. They both spend three days in a fish and in a tomb, enough time for any sort of hint that they might not have been dead to be gone. Three days after dying is enough simply just to know If someone's been dead three days, it's done, only to live again. They both end up seeing people come to God in repentance and faith. And yet, Jesus is like Jonah, but he's better, because there's some differences, aren't there? Jonah, on the one hand, doesn't want to go, and tries to get out of it. In fact, tries to go as far as he can in the opposite direction, if he can get away with it. And yet we see with Jesus that he doesn't see his position as something to be grasped hold of and uh, struggled for and held on to, but he lets go of it happily. We see Jonah not wanting the people to be saved. That's one of the shocking things about Jonah as a missionary is he actually doesn't want the people to be saved. He wants, even if he has to go, I'll go and I'll declare God's judgment and then I hope he'll bring his judgment and I can get to watch the city go up in smoke. He doesn't want to see them be saved. And yet, Jesus we see coming desperately wanting and seeking for us to be saved. He comes uh, to lay down his life. He doesn't try to escape it. We see Jonah hating the people of Nineveh. He looks down on them. He doesn't think they're worthy of being saved. He's angry when God does save them. And yet we see Jesus loving people, having compassion, having mercy on people we see Jonah risking everybody in the boat's life. Because of his unfaithfulness to God, a storm comes over them, and all these other poor guys, who for all their other faults they might have had in life, hadn't turned against God, and actually are desperately scared and saying, come on, pray to you God, somebody has done something here, let's sort it out, risks all their lives because of his unfaithfulness. And yet we see Jesus coming, healing and restoring and renewing life for people. We see uh, Jonah just wanting to come and preach God's judgment um, and angry when God forgives indeed. And yet you see Jesus coming, preaching the kingdom and the good news of life in God. We see Jonah disobeying God, arguing with God, complaining about God. And yet you see Jesus coming, speaking the words of the Father, doing the work of the Father, you see Jonah looking, if he can, to even just die to save himself, that he almost happily in the end will say to the people on the boats, yeah, chuck me overboard, it's because of me, because he thinks, here's my way out. Just chuck me over and I'll drown, because I'd rather do that than go to Nineveh. I'd rather drown myself than go over there and even see God be merciful to them. And yet you see Jesus dying to save many others, not himself. Jesus doesn't offer a further sign But he shows how he'll fulfill everything that scripture ever pointed us to. It's in a conflict that won't end. A question they shouldn't have asked, the answer they didn't want to hear to it. And then lastly, we see this verdict that Jesus gives. Because he finishes us off here. We're giving this uh, two judgments against these religious rebels. Look at verse 41 there with me. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it and what could possibly be worse for a religious person than to think that these very irreligious people, so much so that God's judgment until they did repent was going to come on them for their practices and their life, actually come off better than them. I don't think there can be anything more painful for a very religious person who thinks very highly of themselves than for their pretensions to be smashed only to see someone that they had looked down on held up as an example here are these people who for all of the mistakes they may have made got the one most important thing right they repented they turned around they followed god they repented at the preaching of jonah That terrible preaching of Jonah where he goes and just gives the judgment of God and I am sure hopes that they won't listen and won't repent and so then they'll die. Actually, by God's grace, works through a terrible sermon. There's hope for us. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. They repent where the Pharisees don't. And yet something greater than Jonah is here. We're told. Here's the interesting thing as well, you know, if results are everything, if the results show whether you're faithful to God or not, Jonah, who tries not to have results, has more results, noticeably, physically, than Jesus. What a strange thing. Tells us how ridiculous that idea is, that results are everything. In fact, actually, the sinister side to that is that that can often be used to justify abuse in churches, can't it? But look here, Jesus, the son of God even, actually has less evident physical results right in front of him there and then than Jonah. So that's the first judgment, the men of Nineveh. But secondly, lastly, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. And you can read the story of this in 1 Kings chapter 10 of the queen of Sheba traveling the continent to hear Solomon's wisdom. She hears of it and says, Well, you know, I heard of it, but it wasn't until I came here and saw it and uh, sat with you and spoke with you and gave all these questions to you and heard your wisdom that I realized it was really true. Everything they said was really true. And this must have come from God. This can't just come from you. You know, that would have taken real humility, wouldn't it? This is a great queen. She comes from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It takes real humility. At the end of it, the great queen praises the God of Solomon who gave such wisdom. And yet these Pharisees can't. And the point here in this this bit of the verdict here is that, look, the immoral repent. The great, listen. But these stuck-up, pretentious Pharisees who think they're so great, who think that they're all that, but aren't, who think that they're this great moral example, but aren't, who think they're so great, but are really nobodies. They don't. And it shows they're not. Do you see that? That actually here, the real surprising thing is, those who they might look down on as immoral, actually wind up repenting and finding life in Jesus. The great, seemingly, actually are humble enough to come and recognise God's wisdom, God's power, God's grace. Whereas those who think they're great but are not, can't. Those who think they're so moral, aren't. And yet, there's still grace here, isn't there? There's still grace here, even in this response. And this is biting, right? This is challenging. You think if that's what you've spent your life on, to be told that it's totally meaningless, it's worth nothing. It's like these people who come onto Antiques Roadshow and they think they've got this amazing family heirloom. It's been passed on generation to generation. They've been told this is worth thousands thousands. Keep hold of this, never sell this. This is going to be so good. And someone will say, you know, this this is sell it in a car boot sale. You'd be lucky to get a fiver for it. And yet there's grace here. Because if Jesus didn't care, surely he'd just say nothing and just leave him to die. Maybe he would take Jonah's approach, saying, you know what? (sighs) No big loss if they don't turn around anyway. You see the graciousness of Jesus that he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. So you might be wondering just as we finish here, how do we apply this to ourselves? Because a lot of it seems really specific to Jesus, doesn't it? Really specific to his life and ministry. And of course it is. And yet there's two questions that maybe will help us just as we come to a close here. Why might Jesus have been tempted not to say no? Why might Jesus have been tempted to give the Pharisees what they asked for? To give them a sign. And then secondly, what's the relevance of Jesus' claim to divinity here? What's the relevance of him in the midst of all of this discussion and conflict that brings this all out? What's the relevance also of all of this stuff about how Jesus is really God? Well, the two things are connected, and they help us as we come to a close. We struggle to say no because we inflate people's importance. Do we not? In our mind and in that moment, we inflate the importance of others. We inflate the importance of other things. And by extension, there's no other way around it but then to say that in, in so doing that, we deflate the value of God. We deflate his importance in that moment. We struggle to say to no to things that even though we really actually know we ought to, because in that moment, nothing seems more important, more significant than having that person's approval, than pleasing that person, than giving them what they want. But, if you, like Jesus, inflate the importance and the significance of God the Father, and in so doing, the importance and the significance of people around you will be deflated, you'll be able to say no that much more, that much freer when you need to, and to live as Jesus can say of himself that I just go even the words of the Father, doing the works of the Father, wonderfully liberated from other people's expectations and demands to just do what he knows is right for what God's calling him to. Let me pray for us and then we'll uh, sing a closing song together. My worth is not in what I own. Father God, I confess, and uh, I know for, for many of us here will struggle with this too, that Lord, we have those moments and those times and those places and spaces in life in which it is, it is sometimes difficult to have the right perspective, and in moments, sometimes the demands and the expectations of other people can seem to take so much significance and we can find ourselves actually frayed at the edges, being pulled in every direction and stretched to, to breaking because we struggle to say no. Because we have that fear of that people might be disappointed, that people might be upset, that people might think a bit less of us because we didn't do that. That we might feel as though we don't quite fit in in that circle because not doing the same things Lord, we we struggle with that so much jesus i thank you that you did not struggle with that but you were so faithful even in all these moments where you know what it would have been so tempting to just give in and to kind of go off course from what you've been called to Lord, well, thank you so much that you did that because it means we can this morning place our confidence and faith in you. Because you've only ever and always been and will be faithful to your Father, you are able to give yourself for us in our place. We have thought this morning about how the law is always pointing us to the fact that we're always falling short somewhere. That we always ultimately, at the end of it, need a substitute. Need somebody who can really genuinely, truthfully say, I've done it. I've got it. I'll cover it for you. Lord, we thank you that precisely because we can trust in you that you've done that for us and we can have confidence and we can not be worried that it might be found that the check that you wrote is going to bounce. Holy Spirit, help us where there's those moments in our lives and places and things Lord, where, where maybe we need a bit of courage at times to be able to say no and where we don't find that easy. Holy Spirit, help lead us and guide us and direct us into the path that you've called us to and the calling that you've given us in our work, in our studies, in our home life, amongst our friends and our family. Lord, lead us and guide us and help us, Lord, to follow you closely, trusting in you, placing our hope and our security in you and not fearing how other people view us and see us. But Lord... Leaning on you, Lord, we thank you that we have such a trustworthy Savior to look to. We thank you that we can look to your example and know that you will always come good for us. So, Lord, I pray now you would just impress that on our hearts now in these moments and through the course of these next few days as you send us out over this week, Lord, to be your people where you've put us for your glory. We ask it, Amen. We invite you to.